Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Vitaly Katzenelson. He is the CEO of IMA, a value investing firm headquartered in Denver, Colorado. Vitaly is the author of the new book, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. This is his first non-investing book and I could not put it down. In this book, he talks about his love of writing, family, work, music, and stoic philosophy. In this conversation, we talk about Vitaly's journey from the Soviet Union to America, starting uh, in the world of investing. We also talk about how writing really changed his life and career. We got into the markets talking about how high interest rates have made value investing great again and why there could be opportunities in the tech sector. We also talk about trouble brewing in the housing market and why we're probably headed to a longer recession than folks are expecting. We also got into tribalism here in the U.S., self-censorship, and why we need to get back to civil discourse. And we talked about why student loan forgiveness is a slippery slope. I really enjoyed Vitaly's book and this conversation, and I hope you do too. Vitaly Katznelson, CEO of IMA and author of the new book, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on, Vitaly. Julie, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, we were just chatting and I know you've written uh, a few books that were investing focused and Soul in the Game, while it's not an investing focused book, I have to say, I think it's a must read for anyone in the, in the investing community. It really surprised and delighted me in so many ways. So I encourage folks who are here watching or listening to pick up a copy. But, um, you know, it's just really powerful about philosophy and kind of finding that meaning of life and uh, just an incredible read. So I just want to start there. But uh Let's begin, Vitaly, with your background, which is kind of how you open up the book and you, you share a bit about your upbringing, uh, some of the mm. lessons. But for folks listening, can you share with us, uh, you know, your background? Yeah. So I well, so today I live in Denver. I have a wife and three kids, and I'm a I'm a I'm a diehard value investor, and so I'm a CEO of IMA, which is a value investment firm. In addition to that, I write, and I used to be kind of like embarrassed of writing because I thought people would not take me seriously as an investor because, you know, he's the guy who writes. But I today I kind of fully embraced it. I realized I'm a, I'm a person, I'm a student of life. I'm a person who invests, who writes. But I'm, you know, so I, so, so I wrote, as you mentioned, several investment books, but I also write, you know, articles, which are published, you know, Market Watch, Financial Times, Barons, et cetera. Um, and, uh, but that's not what you're asking me. So, so what you're asking me, where did I get my accent? That's what you're asking me. And let me tell you this. So, so I was born in Russia. Actually, I was born in, it's kind of interesting. When I left Russia, I was not really living in Russia. I was living Soviet Union because we left uh, 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 Moscow in, in, uh, basically in December 1991. At that point in time, Soviet Union was, you know, I was living in Soviet Union. Then literally months later, the you know, Soviet Union ceased to exist. So I, yeah, so I was born in Murmansk, Russia, and that's where I spent most of my, you know, basically the first 18 years of my life. And then my whole family immigrated to the United States and we, you know, we lived in Denver since. Got it. Um, so you came to the U.S. 31 years ago, um, and you, you kind of like share in the book, um, you know, some of the things that surprised you coming from uh, the former Soviet Union to the U.S. and even like some of your perceptions around, you know, capitalism, for example. Can you kind of take us back to that period in your life and, you know, some of your encounters or realizations coming to the U.S. 30 years ago? Yeah, so the um, so what you, what's important to understand when I was in Russia, I did not know a single person, a single person who owned their business. Every single person, even including the barber, worked for the government. So every, you know, uh, and so there was, uh, it was, a, it was a con command controlled economy. And with a com command controlled economy, you get a very inefficient economy. Um, uh, and so, like a lot of our stores, like you know, my, my parents were always worried about how they're going to feed us because the store shelves were always empty. Um, you had to uh, there was there were, you know, the the food was you know was always like meat, you know, meat, chicken, eggs were always hard to find, um, and we were given vouchers, uh, 
you know, for so many pounds of uh, meat, you know, per person per month. So if they were selling meat, you can only get so little, you know, so much of that. So my parents were always uh, concerned about, you know, what are we going to eat tomorrow? But we never really went hungry. And, um, and so that was kind of, you know, so that was uh, kind of, I, so I got used to that in Russia. So when I come to United States, when I came to United States, I went to the supermarket and I was shocked because there was just incredible abundance of food. And really, I got to tell you this story. So until I was 18 years old, I had Pepsi or Coke, actually, in this case it was Pepsi once. And I remember how magical that experience was because very, very hot outside. And I'm like, you know, like Coca-Cola commercial, like I, you can, you, you can make this into commercial because I like having that magical drink was a, such a incredible experience. Now, when I came to the United States and I go to the supermarket, I realized I can buy a gallon of Coke or Pepsi and it's very cheap. And so, you know what I did for the next three years? I consumed more Coke over the next three years in my life in the United States than I did over previous, like I made up for the, you know, for the 18 years of uh, missing consumption of Coke. And the interesting part, there is actually some value in scarcity. And the value in scarcity is that when, like on the, uh, at the end of year three, when I, you know, when I had a gallon of Coke a day, I was sitting at the village inn and I had my third refill of Coke and I remember how I could not taste it anymore. It tasted like water. I could not even taste the sugar anymore because I drank so much of it. And this is where I realized that we kind of, you know, coming from Soviet Union, I, you know, kind of having a, a lot of food and having drinking, be able to drink Coke as much as you want, sounded like a great thing. But there is a there is some value in scarcity, and there is also downside in abundance. And that was a kind of very important lesson for me. Yeah. Um, what I love about the the book, too, is just the way you you're, the way you find these analogies and stories and, and you kind of can share lessons, too. Just from like you had never had a Coke or a Pepsi except for once in your life and then just having too much of it. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you still drink soda to this day. You were sipping, I think, a seltzer. No, this is this is this is like this, to be honest, this is bubbly. This has zero calories. Yeah. Because I so, do know so that is, you, you don't eat dessert um, anymore. No, no, and I and I, I literally only drink Coke now when I go to see a movie. So I drink like I stopped. So, so what happened was I was twenty one, I stopped drinking Coke, and now it's a, so the only time I have it now when I go to see a movie. So I drink Coke three or four times a, a year now, and I tell you every single time I have Coke. Oh, Pepsi. I'm, I don't know why I keep going between Coke and Pepsi, like I'm going to insult one or the other. But anyway, but whenever I have a Coke, I have a soda, I enjoy it so much more because I only do so many things, you know, just uh, so few times a year. Now, this is this is basically bubbly water. So there is no sugar here. This is just zero calorie, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. totally. You were talking, Vitaly, about, um, you know, the notion of business when you were in the Soviet Union, like how that even worked. Like, People didn't like have like their own businesses, government owned, and then coming here and kind of seeing the capitalist system. And um, for folks who don't follow you, like you're in the value investing world, um, which is a world I cover, uh, kind of or covered as a journalist, like the world of you know Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and many many value investors. And um, so you're in the investing community. You're investing in like what you see as great businesses. Um, how did like let me ask you this? Like how did you get interested in investing or even, you know, wanting to pursue a career in that field? What was that for you? So, you know, when I came to the United States, I had no idea what I'm going to do. And um, so I enrolled in university and I was, you know, realized I wanted to do something in business, though for some time I, you know, so it's kind of funny when I, like I'd really changed, literally changed major every few months. And this is like 1995, I think. And O.J. Simpson's trial was a huge deal. Like it was such like people don't remember this now, but at the time, 
even CNBC stopped their like normal programming after market hours. And after the market closed for five hours, you would have like everybody would talk about OJ Simpson trial. That like when they say it was a trial of the century, it really was. Like this, they, you know, every single channel probably had three to five hours of programming a day about the trial. And I was so exposed to that that even for for a little while, I contemplated about being a lawyer, but that didn't last very long. Um, but I so I I dated a lot of different majors when I was in college, and then nothing really clicked until I took a finance class. I took a finance class, and you know, Julia, it was like a love of you know, love of first sight. Suddenly, it's almost like everything clicked with me. It was very natural for me. And so I changed my mind. And also at the same time, I was working at an investment firm. I, I they hired me, you know, because of my computer skills. So I, I, you know, what I was doing had nothing to do with investments. But I was taking these finance classes. I started to talk to portfolio managers about what I was learning in school. And I was also lucky; those were very good people who wanted to talk to this, you know, fresh immigrant of the boat, immigrant owner of the boat about you know investments and stuff. And I changed my major for the last time to, you know, basically finance. And I was lucky that maybe when I was 22, 23 years old, I was focused now just, you know, just on finance. Yeah. So I finished my undergraduate grad degree in finance. I got my CFA. I even taught investments at CU, uh, CU Denver for a few years, you know, for five or seven years, I think. So, yeah, you, you, um, you call it love it, love it first sight. Like talk to me about like that, feeling like how how do you know that it's like love at first sight from a you know career perspective you know it's very easy test i mean the if i basically was making kind of very little money would i still want to do this it's that simple you know it's a like you know i am like you know warren buffett he says he top dances to work and i agree with that because you know i you know, I, I I drive to work, but they, but I love it, and uh, it's it's money is really such a secondary or third consideration. Uh, it's a uh, so it, you know what's important about investing as like from career perspective. If you enter in this profession because of money, you're gonna be miserable. Here's why: because you'll be competing against people who are doing this just because they love it. And therefore, they will outlast you. They're gonna, you know, the there's a uh, there's a famous basketball saying: you can't hire height. Well, you can't like you know like um, I'm uh, like in basketball, right? So in investing, you can't uh, you know when you hire somebody, if the person doesn't have a passion, you can't you know like that person you know that uh, that person is gonna be miserable. And uh, like you know, when we were hiring analysts for my firm, that's number one thing I was looking for for passion, mm-hmm. because they will outlast. Because there will be time when it's difficult. There will be time when it's painful, and if you're passionate about it, you get through that. Yeah, I, I like the Warren Buffett tap dancing to to work, and I can certainly tell that you know, just based on your writings, that that this is such a passion for you. And you know, speaking of writing, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation. Um, that you're a little bit embarrassed when you first started writing. And I have to say, like, your writing is how I found you. And it's why I invited you on the show. And you've been featured in a, many, many, many publications. Like, talk to me about your journey as a writer. Like, why why was it so embarrassing at first? And how did you kind of overcome that? Yeah. So this is kind of a funny story. So I started writing in 2004. The street.com at the time was, I think, probably the first financial website that actually had outside columnists. Okay, before, you know, be, before that time, the um, financial publications would never, you know, kind of use outside columnists or market commentators to publish the content. And the Studentcom was the first one to do this. And so when they hired me, they paid me absolutely nothing. And I'll be honest, they were overpaying me because I was horrible. And it, to make, in addition to being horrible, I was. I was so self-conscious about my writing. I was very proper. I was incredibly, incredibly boring. And um, in fact, you know, I'm I probably should go back and read, you know, one of those articles that's 18 years ago, and, and just to see how how much I progressed because the bar was incredibly, incredibly low. But 
But the thing is, I was young and I had absolutely no self-awareness. And literally a year later, a friend of mine, uh, actually, it's kind of interesting, uh, James Altucher, James Altucher uh, who also, also started the Sweet.com, he started writing for Financial Times. And I thought, oh, Financial Times, this sounds cool. So I said, James, can you introduce me to editor at Financial Times? He said, sure. James introduced me to editor at Financial Times. And I sent him my articles. And they, they said, sure, write for Financial Times. So I started writing for Financial Times. And Julia, I'll be honest, if like today, there is no way I would have done it because I would have so, I would be so self-conscious because I would have said, so you've been writing for a year. You sucked at it, and now you want to write for one of the most prestige, prestigious newspaper in the world. In the, in, the, in the world, but I didn't. You know, I guess you know, lack of self awareness is you know, could be a good thing. So this is how I started writing for Financial Times, and little by little, I got more confidence. And also, I had this trick, um, which ended up being a huge deal for me. I would write these articles, and I would send them out to my friends. Uh, who did not really ask to be sent those articles. <laughs> so, but over the, you know, over time, this, you know, number of people who read my articles grew and I started to get their feedback. And the feedback was very, very positive. And I'll tell you this, for a writer having a feedback, that positive feedback, especially for a writer, for a starting writer, that feedback was very important because it gave me confidence to kind of, to push the boundaries of my knowledge or my comfort zone in writing. And, over over the year, over years, over the years, I kind of started to branch out in adjacent topics to invest in. I you know started writing about life, classical music, parenting, and I'll tell you, like that was a you know to arguably I have the um, uh, I have I have all the reasons to write about investing because I have you know I have degrees in finance, I have a CFA, I've been managing money for decades, but even you know, venturing into writing about adjacent topics, even about parenting, it you know, having confidence is a huge deal. And uh, this feedback I got from readers was instrumental for me to do that. Yeah, I think like reading your book too. Some of my favorite parts were you know stories you would tell about your your three children and like the lessons, um, you know, learned from them. And like I, I'm not a parent yet, but some of the ideas in there I could tell you I'm going to steal them. Like I steal like an artist, like <laughs> taking your kids to buy. You know, you have an unlimited budget on buying books. For example, you buy a book mm. once a week for one of your your daughters. Or and by the way, stories. I stole this idea from Guy Spears' wife. So I. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it was great. But I, I, um, just to kind of like go a little bit deeper on the writing, how mm-hmm. has that changed or transformed you, um, you know, as a person or also as an investor? I keep having folks on the show and it seems to me the ones who are writing, they talk about how it's really changed their life and their career. How do you think it's changed or impacted your career? And what do you think would have happened if you, if you didn't put yourself out there or write? Oh my God, I can't even imagine what my life would have been if I didn't start writing. It is by far the most important thing that has happened to me as an individual, like right on the same, like like right on par with parenting. Um, why? So why? It's very simple. I wake up every day at about five o'clock in the morning and for two hours I write. My brain it's kind of a scattered brain. So my thoughts are kind of loosely organized. And this two hours a day of, of uh, focused thinking allow basically me to access my subconscious, which is kind of this supercomputer where all my good thoughts are buried. And, you know, combination of, you know, kind of creativity and focus allows me to come up with ideas that I would not have otherwise. So if I have anything insightful to share with you, it's only because I've been, you know, at some point I thought about this. I, at some point through writing. So, you know, and if I do it every day. So I spend about 700 hours a year writing. And um, the and what it does, uh, it's basically makes me a better human being, a lot more thoughtful. In, it's it's increased my IQ tremendously, which I really needed a lot because I didn't know it wasn't very high. Um, but also, 
it made me a much better investor because you know I also you know I spent a lot of time writing about investing and just made me a lot more thoughtful. Uh, so that's that's the impact it had on me. Yeah, like a more thoughtful investor. You also um, share a story in the book. I want you to go back and share it too. Um, how writing helped you deal with a painful period in your career as an investor, and I think it. I want to say, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say it was around 2012. 2015, yeah. 2015, sorry. It was 2015. You were on a trip with friends in Israel. They're having the time of their lives, um, you know, seeing everything. And you were going through a painful period and writing really helped you cope with that painful period. Can you go back and share that experience and um, how that helped you? So, yeah. So the 2015 was somewhat a difficult year for value investors because, Seems like value was a very out of favor. In addition to that, I, I made some, you know, like so it was difficult to begin with. I think the non-value stocks were doing much better, and I think I made a few mistakes. So I, so I had a more pain than you know, like it was a very painful period of time. Um, and and to, and I found myself I was in Israel this this November 2015. And at come, you know, like in the middle of the trip, one of one of my stocks, you know, it was a not a huge position, but a good, you know, good enough size position, declined by eighty percent in literally a day. And I was in tremendous amount of pain. Um, and I had a lot of new investors, and those people never saw any positive returns from me at that point because I was, you know, it was a down year, and it was very very depressing experience. And uh, so I'm, I'm on the street, and my friends are mesmerized by Israel. They, you know, they're going to all these different wonderful places, and they're all happy. And I'm like, I'm just dying inside. And what's interesting, until that point, like this is the first time in my life I was like truly, truly depressed. And um, the so uh, one evening I came home. And I basically kind of wrote a letter to, to, to my client saying, here's what's happening. And so so when I was writing this letter to clients, I was ex- like, it's kind of the rational version of me came back. And I walked them through all the stocks that are down. And, you know, and I, walking through the stocks, you know, walking through the portfolio one by one, kind of, uh, uh, I realized, well, first of all, a lot of stocks are down, but their value, you know, but they, it's just because the price is down doesn't mean that the companies are worth less. Uh, in fact, a lot of them I thought would, would, would be worth a lot more. Yes, one or two stocks will never come back, but it's it's a portfolio of stocks. Therefore, on the portfolio level, we're still, we're still going to be fine. And there is a trick. Um, whenever you have a problem, if you, like whenever your friend has a problem and you talk to your friend, you're always going to sound very rational. But when you talk to yourself uh, about the problem you're having, you're going to be a lot less rational. So Stoics have this concept is that when you try to, like, instead of talking to yourself, try to talk as if you were talking to your friend about your problems. And therefore, and that's going to make, then you'll be able to see your problems more objectively. And it's going to lessen a lot of times you would find it's going to lessen the gravity of those problems. And that's exactly what would happen when I wrote a letter to clients, to my clients, a more rational person of myself came back. And actually, I felt a lot better by the, you know, by, by the time I was done with the letter. And the amazing part, my clients were actually very empathetic to me. And uh, we, very, we lost very, very few clients. And the, ironically, yeah, like if you, like if you, if you basically, if I went to sleep like in 2015 and woke up in 2016, I would have woken up to to you know to great returns, right? So uh, that's you know that's basically what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that was the first time in your life that you truly felt like depressed. Um, yes. And you also talk about you mentioned stoicism, and I know that's an important part of your book and uh, how you kind of live your life and investing. And you talk about this kind of stoicism being like an operating system for life. Like how have you deployed that to, you know, um, deal with challenges? Like have you had other periods where you felt that way, where you've had to kind of use writing or more stoicism to, 
to, um, you know, kind of get over it or? Yeah. So like, let me tell you the first time I used it without knowing it. The most traumatic experience actually I had in my life and uh, is uh, I was uh, 11 years old and I lost my mother, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, I, you know, she died uh, from brain cancer. And I remember that that was a like uh, that was such a traumatic experience that I started started to be afraid to lose my father, and um, like oh like I was always afraid that my father is gonna die too, and that that kind of what the Stoics would call it I, at the time I didn't I knew nothing about Stoicism, and um, but the Stoics would call it negative visualization, so I visualized that my father would die, and that you know that fear actually. Um, like I hate kind of finding silver clouds and my mom's death, but that was a silver cloud because it brought me brought me so much closer to my father, and you know until now, like for you know, this this was you know, almost forty years ago, and I I've been very close to my father with my father since, and like I would go, like I would you know my father and I would go on, on different trips you know from Europe to South Africa. We drive to Santa Fe every year. I go to his house several times a week for breakfast we go for walks that's you know that's a this kind of realization that uh that my father at some point will die actually made me value him so much more uh that's a you know like and by the way the let me give you a less dramatic version of this um my my daughter hannah is 16 years old she is in 11th grade in high school um the kind of the younger version of me would be kind of frustrated that I have to drive her to school every day because, you know, instead of driving her to school, I could be going to work and whatever. I can be doing, reading 10Ks or whatever. Um, but the kind of the historic version of me, the newer version of me realizes that Hannah in two years will be out of the house. She won't need me to drive her to school. And that I only have 300 something days of of those one-on-one -on -one time I have with her in the car. So now I, every time I drive her to school, I look at this not as a chore, but as a, this incredible privilege. And when I'm in the, in the car with her, I actually spend time with her. Spend time with her, and actually I'm driving my youngest daughter too. So that, changed you know so the stoics would call it reframing so this combination of negative visualization and reframing i took one situation i re i reframed it from negative to positive and suddenly what would be would have been what what i perceived as negative now became positive um so that's the you know that's would be another example of kind of how i apply stoicism yeah like i like that the um the reframing and, um, you know, also recognizing mortality. Um, and yes. that, yeah, you know, and like really using your time. Uh, I think you write a lot in the book about how we actually have a lot of time. It's just, we don't all use it. Um, or a lot of it's wasted and like really using it and investing it. I'm spending time with those who really matter the most. Um, how would you say stoicism could apply to investing? Um, in Stoicism, this, there's a central concept called the Academy of Control. What the Academy of Control is basically Epictetus who, so let me just pause for a little bit. Let me talk about what, Sto, what is Stoicism. Stoicism is a 2,000-year-old philosophy that you know, came from ancient Greece. And basically, there are three, uh, three Stoics that we still refer to today because their writings survive to this day. That would be Seneca. Uh, Seneca, he was a kind of, uh, he was the true Renaissance man, 15 centuries before Renaissance. He was a playwright. He was a advisor to emperor. He was a senator. Uh, uh, he was investment banker, you know, you know, you know, so that was, was Seneca. Then there was Marcus Aurelius, who was the most powerful person in the world, at least in the Western hemisphere. He was an emperor of Rome. And then there was Epictetus and Epictetus was a slave. Um, so Epictetus has this framework and it's called what we now call the dichotomy of control. And this is really, this framework is really what attracted me to Stoicism. And this framework says something very, very simple. And it says, some things are up to us 
some things aren't. Okay, so far that doesn't sound so exciting. But when you discover what's up to you, you, you know, that that's what really you know, gets interesting. You realize that what's up to you is basically your values and your actions, your behavior. Everything else is not up to you. Okay, when you're driving to work and uh, every single light you hit is the uh, red light, that's not up to you. What's up to you, I guess, is how you perceive this, number one, but so, so also how you react to this. Uh, when you're at the grocery store and there's, you know, and a clerk is rude to you, it, that's not up to you. You should not really expect to go through life and expect that everybody is going to be smiling and kind to you. That would be just naive. But what's up to you is how you react to this. Now, if you think about investing, okay, special value investing, what is not up to you, like what's up to you is your process, is how you analyze companies, is, you know, what kind of decisions you make. What's not up to you is how stock market is going to value those companies at any point in time, okay? Or how they get, it's, it's actually not how to value, how it's going to price them at any point in time. And uh, this is where like value investing and stoicism have a lot in common because like as an investor, you focus on your process and you try to improve it, knowing that in the short term especially, you have so little control over outcome. I was just taking notes because I was like, this. I, I really like where you're going with this, um, the dichotomy of control and how it applies to the world of value investing. Um, I would love to just kind of ask you right now, um, like what is kind of your assessment or your views of like value investing today? I mean, when we're talking about when we went back to 2015, how it was a little bit out of favor at that time period when you had the more painful experience. Oh, a lot of turbulence in markets today. What do you make of the landscape as it relates to value investing? I'm incredibly excited. I feel like uh, I'm going to paraphrase our ex-president. Uh, high interest rates made value investing great again. Uh, <laughs> and it, because what happened that when interest rates are low, when, when interest rates are low, the common sense, like there are, it create, no, uh, when interest rates are low, they create a lot of bubbles in many different places except one place, common sense. The common sense kind of thrown out of the window. And a lot of store, like companies are not, um, companies are valued on their stories. So a lot of companies would be owned on the earnings they're going to have in 2040. And which is fine because, you know, the market justifies it because if interest rates are zero, earnings in 2040, you know, 2040 worth almost as much as they're worth in 2022. Now, and and companies can you know can basically you know can burn a lot of cash, not focus on cash flows. Okay. However, when interest rates go up, suddenly the common sense start to come back, and suddenly the quality of your decisions start to matter. Because before that, the the more aggressive you were, the more speculative you were, the more you were kind of the great, the richer was your imagination, the more money you made. The high interest rates, I feel like, put put the end to it. So now stock picking actually is coming back to life again, and actually, the quality, like the quality of my decisions, actually have an impact on our portfolio, like on the on our performance, on you know. And I, so I, I'm very very excited. Yeah, no, I, I, it's interesting. Um, can we just? Ex I want to hear a bit more and explore a bit more. So, do you think it's like the last decade plus of, you know, super low rates, easy money, money printing that kind of made it a difficult time before for uh, value investing. It was just like the growth stocks were more favored. Um, just want to hear more on this. Yeah, sure. So if you look at a lot of technology companies, they basically focused on growth and growth at any cost. And a lot of times, and I'm like, I'm looking, like, uh, there, there are a lot of these companies now down 70, 80%. And as a as an investor, as a value investor, I am very excited to look at them to see if I find something interesting there. And a lot of them are great businesses, but what I find, despite them, you know, they've been down 70%, a lot of them are still, number one, they were valued. But then, like, as you start looking below the surface, you find that the revenues went up a lot. But the but the expenses absolutely like outpace revenue growth by a huge margin. These companies, um, 
and what, what's difficult when you grew, when you are only focused on growth and when all your competitors are focused on growth, especially if you're in Silicon Valley, because there is a relatively limited talent pool of how many engineers you can hire, right? What starts to happen, you start pushing prices of engineers higher and higher. You have to give them more and more stock. You know, uh, I was talking to somebody who uh, works at Facebook and he was telling me how originally Facebook was gonna, you know, was gonna spend maybe billion dollars on, on, the, on the metaverse. Now it's on track to spend $50 billion. And the quality, I would argue, the quality of that spending is probably incredibly, incredibly low because you just have to, you know, they were, they were paying a lot of money for almost anybody who, who can fog a mirror, you know, and, and hold a keyboard. Um, so as the, so that was, that super high growth was not actually very healthy. And as now things normalize, you you know, and you're going to start, start seeing this, you're going to start seeing layoffs, you know, in the, in Silicon Valley. And by the way, that's unfortunate, but it's probably good for these companies in the long run because they get to get rid of a lot of, you know, they get to become more efficient, get rid of a lot of fat. And at some point, at some point, these companies actually will become a good business, you know, kind of good investments. Uh, and their cost structure will be, you know, kind of will be very different. They will stop, you know, like a lot of these companies today are giving away, like, you know, 10, 15% of the company every year to their employees, which is just, you know, which is like completely insane. It's very difficult for stock to be good investment when you, when you give away 10, 10 or 15% of your shares to your employees every year. Um, so, and so suddenly when interest rates are higher, and when the access to capital becomes more difficult, companies that, that generate cash flows and that don't rely on the capital markets become more and more kind of valuable. Uh, so that's you know that's that's what's basically, basically happening. Yeah, like when there's an abundance of capital, they can kind of throw it at anything and anyone, and it and it kind of sounds to me like maybe. You know, the recent there's a lot of talk right now about like tech layoffs, for example. Um, but it could that also be a like I don't know what you think of those. Would love to hear your thoughts there. But maybe just a sign of maybe there's more common sense coming back um, now that we're kind of out of the high growth phase, if you will. You know, it's kind of interesting. So you and I were talking about abundance in the beginning of the conversation. Abund abundance and scarcity. Mm -hmm. Like my scarcity experience in Russia and abundance I experienced in the United States. And there is a like. Like I don't want anybody to go through what I went through, you know, the scarcity I went in Russia, but it, you know, so there is so the extreme of scarcity is bad, the extreme of abundance is bad as well. So when interest rates come back to a semi-normal level, I think the the market will come back to kind of a kind of Goldilocks of combination of between scarcity and abundance, and yes, a lot of these companies will gonna, are going to have to lay off. A lot of the employees, they will be. Somebody asked me what I think about this quiet. Uh, what is it called? It's uh, quiet quitting, right? Is that, quiet is that quit. Yeah, there's this notion of yeah, quiet yeah. quitting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you this. I know exactly how it's going to end. It's going to end with loud firing. Yeah, because if you know when when this company uh, are when these companies are drowning in cash, and um, and this, you know and the, and the capital is ready available, and investors are willing to pay more and more for uh, for for lack of earnings or, or for just for, for growth, nobody cares about this. But when they have to suddenly produce cash flows, you start looking at people who work for a company and you say, is this the person I want to keep? So suddenly person who quietly quit, you realize actually, you know, I just I should just fire that person. Um, and uh, so I think this companies, I think they will be like we all be going through a kind of a, a kind of a version of dot com 2.0 bubble. So we kind of, you know, a lot of people would push me back on this and say, yes, but the companies that were in the kind of bubbly in, in, at the end of 2021 are much better businesses than uh, kind of the ones that we saw in 2001. And actually, I think that would be a fair argument, except the valuations were so, so high that even there, like in, in like last year, that even after they're down 70%, they're still expensive. So I think the the way usually these bubbles you know, work is that, you know, there will be kind of a, there will be a period of time when 
nobody will want to touch technology company and this and their valuations will get insane on the other side of it they'll get too cheap and so i'm kind of looking forward to it yeah. because a lot of them are good businesses they just were they have good business models that they, they were just under you know under managed mm-hmm. um you mentioned dot com bubble 2.0 um and i suppose you probably were managing money uh in the yeah. the first dot com bubble can can you just quickly explain what do you mean by that? Because I had a guest recently kind of, you know, he kind of analogized this period to that period as well recently. Um, uh, that was the Brent Donnelly episode for folks who are watching or listening. Um, but can you explain that a bit more, this notion of a dot-com bubble 2.0 and maybe the similarities you see? Yeah. Okay. So a couple observations. There were three type of, I'm going to try, I'm going to generalize, but there were three buckets of companies uh, maybe four. I'm going to identify four buckets of companies that got overvalued in to Southern to Southern one and get worse Southern one. Number ones were kind of the obvious ones, the kind of the pet get pets.com, right? Companies that were just didn't have really have a good business model, but they were internet companies and those declined and never came back. Then there were second group, I would call them uh, kind of the, uh, Amazon, the internet companies that actually had a good business model, but were still overvalued, like the Ebays, the Amazons, right? They still declined, but those were good businesses. So they came back and you know, 15 years later, they were making new highs. Then the third group of businesses, I would put um, companies, technology companies that have benefited from the bubble in the technology spending. And I would put companies like, those were real businesses, uh, but whose revenues temporarily benefited from this unlimited amount of capital that went into buying anything technology related. I would put companies like Cisco, Adele, or Dell Computer into this category. Those declined less, you know, less than the, you know, the first two categories. And those you know, came back you know, a few years later. And then the last category would be kind of a super high quality companies, completely unrelated to anything technology or dot-com related, that were just high quality companies and got overvalued. Like I would put Johnson & Johnson or Walmart into this category, okay? Now, if you bought, the, ironically, when we think about the dot-com bubble of 1999, you know, you know keep talking about, the, you know, we think about the, uh, the pets.com, but even company like Walmart was trading I forget it, 50 times earnings. And here's the irony of this. If you bought Walmart in 1999, I think it took you 18 years to make your money back. Some insane, like a long period of time. If you bought Qualcomm, which I would put it in the category of a third category, kind of high quality companies uh, that's, you know, that benefited from technological bubble, uh, um, that company, uh, their revenues grew 15, 20% a year, earnings grew 15, 20% a year for the next more than decade. And that was an incredible business because that was a wireless company at the epicenter of you know, kind of wireless transformation, right? But the stock was so overvalued, it took a long time for people to kind of to make the money back because the price, price to earnings was so high. Um, so those, so this is kind of what happens in a bubble. You have bad companies that get overvalued and you have good companies get overvalued. And there, as a result, on the bad companies, you lose money may, and may never make them back, like pets.com. On the good companies, it may take you a decade or longer to get your money back uh, because they were so expensive. So I think in this uh, during this bubble, we saw a lot more of companies in a kind of a technology space uh, that were great businesses that were insanely overvalued. And uh, let me see, and there were, and probably there was a lot of what I would call a bond substitutes, like the Coca-Colas of the world. Like, you know, that companies, like, because interest rates were so low, like now I'm talking about the, the latest bubble. Um, the, because interest rates were so low you know, in uh, 2001, 2002, early 2002, people were buying Coca-Cola because stock because it has a yield of three and a half percent and that yield was greater than whatever treasury was paying you and people people's argument was um 
while Coke is not going to go anywhere, its earnings will be higher, not lower, five years from now. And therefore, dividends will probably go up a little bit as well. And therefore, you know, you know, you know, uh, 3% dividend yield from Coke is better than a 10-year bond. That's why I'm going to buy it. What they miss in this logic is that when interest rates, interest rates rise, Coke, you know, when you're basically buying Coke as a long-term bond, when interest rates rise, Coke price will behave like a long-term bond. And and Coke should not be trading at 25 or 30 times earnings. I said, I think it's trading at 30 times earnings. Coke should be trading, you know, this is a company that actually hasn't grown earnings in, in a decade or more. And so therefore it should be trading maybe at 15 times earnings. So the road from 50 to 30 is if, you know, it's 50% decline. So yes, you get to keep that 3%, 3% dividend a year, but, you know, but your capital declines by half. So this is kind of, that's a, you know, that's, yeah, that's kind of my analogy. That's how I would compare the 99 to, to you know, 2021 market. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's so interesting to hear you explain it. Um, you know, you know, you're talking, um, about, you know, eventually like, you know, the tech tech sector could be really interesting for someone to look at from your perspective as a value investor. So does that mean some of these stocks that were considered growth stocks, they can suddenly become value stocks? Absolutely. Uh, the, well, what is a value stock? It's a company that's basically undervalued. That's all it is. So um, what I remember vividly from 2002, nobody wanted to touch kind of X.com's companies because they were so toxic. So many people lost so much money on them, right? But that's what creates an opportunity. So I am like, uh, I'm building a watch list of all these, you know, kind of .com 2.0 stocks that I'm kind of researching little by little every day, because at some point they will become so cheap that I'll be like, I'll be in the kind of value investors paradise. I'll be buying companies that grow in, like that have a potential to grow earnings at a very fast pace that are much better managed now than they were before, because now they have to generate cash flows. And I'll be buying them at the cheaper price, like at, at, at uh, bar, uh, bargain basement prices. That's like, that's my kind of value investors paradise right there. Yeah. Value investors paradise. Um, we're, you know, just talking about the markets, but, I just want to get your take. You're talking about like, you know, high interest rates um, can make value investing great again. How about your view on the impact um, higher rates could have on the the economy? What is kind of your more macro view? Um, I just wrote a loan client letter and I just published it in two parts. In the first part, I, you know, I talked about the housing market. And I would argue that it's almost, you know, again, I'm a, I'm not an economist. I'm a, just a value investor. I'm a person who analyzes companies. So I rarely have an opinion of what's, what the economy is going to do next. But at this point, I think the numbers point that we're going to have a recession. And when you say what numbers, just housing market, what's going on in the housing market. And, um, so Julie, if you look what happened from nine, uh, from 2019, to 2021, 2022 in the housing market, housing prices went up 37 to 40%. Like just like actually it was a 37% increase from 1999 to 20, I'm sorry, to 2019 to 2020 or 2021. In three years, almost 40% increase in prices, which is insane. But the affordability uh, for a while has not really changed because the 30 year mortgage went from 4% to 3%. So average homeowner in the United States was spending about fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a year on the mortgage. And that hasn't changed because the rates declined. So the prices went up, but the rates declined. So that hasn't really wasn't really impacted. So today, median house price in the United States is $440,000. At current rates, if somebody were to buy a house and they put 20% down, it, their, their mortgage would cost at current rates, about $30,000 a year. It's up from 15 to 30. Now, let me just put this in a proper context. A median American makes today about $75,000 a year, which is roughly about 60 slightly plus thousand dollars after tax. 
So they, in other words, they used to spend a quarter of their um, page after tax paycheck on the mortgage. Today, if they buy a house, that would be half of the paycheck. But while we have a you know high gasoline prices uh, and a, a high a higher food prices, so the so the consumer is attacked today from uh, different directions. It gets worse for affordability to come back to let's say fifteen six you know for the housing affordability to come back to fifteen sixteen thousand dollars a year. Uh, the housing prices basically have to decline. I think it's almost forty percent. So in other words. Anybody who bought the house uh, after 2012 would be losing money on the mortgage, on the, on the house. So um, average American today, so the, okay, so the median house price, again, $440,000. Median mortgage is about $260,000. So, uh, so you have about $180,000 of equity on the median house. Well, that equity would get completely wiped out. When that equity is wiped out, it doesn't just impact the people, uh, consumers' ability to borrow against the house. It also impacts their psyche. It impacts their confidence. Um, so, like, so I look at this, and it's a almost like I don't see how we can escape uh, a recession. It just it's a it's a it's 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 not a hundred percent, but it's a it's a very high probability that we're going to be in recession. Now you can argue that we have already been in recession for the first two quarters of the year, right? Because we already had a two negative real growth in GDP in the first six months of the year, um, and like you know, kind of the government and economists said, well, yes, you're right. But unemployment was so low, and we, we had a, so many one-time issues after this pandemic that we really kind of we were really not in a recession, and I'm fine with that. But today we have unemployment 3.3 percent. It's very unlikely that in six, you know, it's very likely that six months or it's the next 12 months, unemployment is going to be much larger. And therefore, that's you know, so that's they're going to be in a, you know in a true recession where where the economy will be declining and unemployment will be going up. Wow. Um, so what, what I heard you say is basically anyone who would have purchased a house since 2012 would be underwater on yes. their initial purchase. That it it gets worse. Let me, let me just let me, let me add one point because it gets worse. Um, so let me tell you where it gets worse. So if you bought a house, uh, if, you know, if you own a house today, Every, almost every American over the last 10 years refinanced their house and they're probably paying maybe 3% mortgage, 2, 3, or 4% mortgage on the house, the interest rate. If you bought a house, so if you own a house and you want to move three doors down uh, in a house that costs as much money as the, the, as your house, you know, as your current house, uh, you, you know, because interest rates, you know, mortgage rates today are over 7%, you'll be paying about $10,000 more for your mortgage. That's a 15% of your income more. You'll be paying more for the same four walls, same two and a half kids and a dog, just because you moved three houses down. That means, and if you already see this, that they're basically, the, the real estate market is almost dead. There are no transactions right now for that reason. Yeah. Um, and how might that impact like an investor, like a value investor, like you're going to think about business that are going to be much more recession proof going forward. How does that impact your framework? Yeah. So we, we are today as a, as a firm, we uh, have almost no exposure to consumer. We are basically making an assumption that um, no normal recessions lasted in the past, you know, about 18 months. We are, you know, we basically assume that this one might last longer than the ones in the past because because of the you know kind of Federal Reserve and the government policies, we haven't really had a recession since the 2008. So uh, we're overdue for recession, and it's probably going to be a longer one than we kind of than than we had the one in the past. So we have no exposure no exposure to discretionary spending, and uh, we don't own any companies that have any you know kind of rely on discretionary spending, or whose health whose you know kind of business is tied to the health of the economy, and. Um, Another thing we're doing is basically 
like like we all like we also you know and it gets more complicated but I think geopolitical situation globally today is very shaky. So we own a lot of defense companies yeah. uh, as a kind of as a hedge for, you know. Yeah. Um, we kind of started this conversation um, with your backstory and kind of your journey coming to the U.S. just over 30 years ago. And I know you've written about this more recently and I've read a bunch of your essays and I just kind of want to hear your views on America today and, you know, some of your concerns or worries, because we often hear about, you know, the division in the country. What are, what's kind of your viewpoint? Yeah, no, I think that America became a lot more tribal. You know, you, like, um, when, I came, when I came to the United States, it didn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, you could still have a civil conversation. Today, it's very difficult to have a civil conversation with somebody who belongs to, you know, a, a opposing party. In fact, like I, I read a number somewhere, and I I'm gonna butcher it, but like and it goes both ways. That, that but basically, seventy percent of parents from one party would not want their kids to marry uh, somebody. If, like like I'm gonna make it up. Like seventy percent of Republicans don't want their kids to marry Democrats, and vice versa. Um, it's it, the country became a lot more tribal. It's very difficult to have a just a kind of a normal conversation to discuss uh, issues without people getting angry. Um, so it's a, you know, I can, I'll be honest, I like the, you know, the country I found more than the country that I see today. Uh, like, you know, like there's, America has changed for the worse in the last 30 years, but like, let's, but let's put this in a proper perspective. The gap between America and the rest of the world was so wide, you know, that the yes, it's not, you know, it's 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 a we have our problems, but it's so much better, still, so much still better place to live than anywhere else in the world. So I would not, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, well, no, certainly not. But, um, I mean, maybe even applying some of these frameworks, mental models, plus, like, what do you think could, what would like kind of help? here is because it feels like you know you've written about this it feels like there's a lot of as you put it self-censoring um, oh yeah people are afraid to kind of speak their minds oh yeah no and i and i and i found myself doing plenty of this so i'll, I'll give you an example i just wrote this essay about housing market i mean not the housing market uh about student loans okay and i was gonna so when the administration came out and they wanted to do the student loan forgiveness i was gonna write about this and I found myself that I almost did not want to write it because I knew I'm going to upset a whole bunch of people. But then I realized, you know what? So what? I I think it's a very important topic. I think what I have to say is it may, it may add value to, to a conversation. So I'm going. So I wrote a very kind of uh, what I felt was non-political essay, basically explaining that student loan forgiveness is a very slippery slope because what may happen at the end is that like you know by the way this you know this door was open you know during financial crisis right uh, you know and uh, and uh, this is what kind of the argument used today you know so the uh, the Wall Street, the kind of Wall Street things get bailed out during financial crisis now let's bail out the main street by by doing student loan forgiveness but you know what was interesting I was thinking about it when my wife and I got married 22 years ago, we, like my son, would, you know, my son was born when, you know, 21 years ago. And I remember I was not making much money then. And I, you know, and, and uh, my wife was going to school. And uh, so it was kind of single income family. And I remember even though we didn't make much money, I was saving for my son's education. And the interesting part about this that it's a kind of it's very difficult to get for, for somebody to get empathy for me today because you know I'm a very successful you know you know kind of person. So, but I'm, I'm not talking about myself today. When we were putting two or three thousand dollars a year for my son's education uh, in uh, I don't know 19, in 2002, uh, that was I don't know five or ten you know, five percent of my income. That's a that's a that's a vacation we give up. 
because we want to make sure our son goes to college. That's a another car we postponed buying for many many years. That's it. Like like that's how much of restaurants we didn't go to because we were saving for his education. And so when you basically start doing student loan forgiveness, you you you're telling the younger versions of me, not you know like not me today, but younger versions of me. You don't need to save. The government will always pay. You don't need to put in your save for your future, you know, for co- uh, kids' college. The government will take care of it. But the problem is, so that's one problem. But then it gets worse. Um, what what's going to happen is this: What about a person who doesn't have a student debt, but owns a house that you know that's now upside down? Well, you just bailed out a whole bunch of people who had student loans. What about? People with mortgages that you know that are down, let's bail them out. Okay, so we just bailed out those people. But what about people? What about a plumber who didn't go to school, so no student loan, and and rents and uh, and uh, rents uh, rents an apartment, so doesn't own a house. You didn't bail them out, but that person now has a lot of credit card debt. Well, let's now. So since you, you already bailed out uh, previous two groups, now they have to bail out this person, and 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 so suddenly. Little by little, if we keep doing this, uh, we're going to become just a banana republic like Soviet Union was, where the basically a larger. So the what's what's interesting if you look at the difference between Soviet Russia and United States. Okay, in Soviet Russia, nobody owned the business; the government owned businesses. In the United States, you have a free market, and government. The role of the government historically, especially if you look at like eighty years ago was very, very small. Every time you raise taxes, you, you make government larger and larger. And what's gonna happen at the end, you basically, you're gonna de- uh, reduce a reason for somebody to work. If 80% of your income gets taxed away, that person will not be waking up at six o'clock in the morning, or five o'clock in the morning, like trying to start a business that may or may not succeed. Because if that you know, because in the, if the business succeeds, the government will take eighty or ninety percent of it. So what's the point of, you know, giving up those hours with your daughter or your son when they're little to you know, try to build a business, if, you know, if you know, if you succeed, ninety percent, eighty percent of this money is going to go to the government. If you fail, you know, you know, you you, you know, you basically uh, going to incur all the all the costs of failure. So anyway, so that's kind of the point. Is this that was my essay. And a lot of my folks at IMA, at my firm, you know, argued that I should not publish it. And I, but I did publish it. And to my surprise, uh, the feedback I received was very, um, balanced. So a lot, a lot of people agreed with me. Some people didn't, but it was a very kind of polite and respectful discourse. And I think this is what we need. We need to be able to have a conversation with somebody who you disagree with and do it in a way that you both can learn. And I think that's a, that's what kind of, you know, that's what kind of has changed over the last 20, 30 years since I came to the United States. Yeah, it's what it means to be a student of life um, too and have that civilized discourse. But like real quick is when you were kind of explaining this essay you put out, is it like, does it, it creates like a does it create like a massive moral hazard or put us on a path uh, more towards socialism? Uh, no, that's exactly that's great. That's exactly right. What you're doing, it's a kind of it's a, like listen. So a lot of so this whole intention of helping other people, it's very noble, right? Like, well, what, what we're trying to do is trying to help other people, but there are second and third order effects. You're absolutely right. You are creating moral, moral hazard. It's a slippery, you're creating a slippery slope. You you are creating incentives for people not to save. Um, and uh, and also, by the way, when you forgive those student loans, it's you basically saying, here's what you're saying. You're saying our kids and our grandkids are gonna pay for this because that that doesn't go away. Somebody still has to pay that, right? It's just you are, you know, the person who went to college and incurred this debt. Now, you know, kind of the debt goes from this person to our next generation. 
So the generation, a lot of them are not even born yet. Um, well, Vitaly, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Loved your book. Loved, loved, loved your book. I want to just pass it back to you. Can you share with folks where they can find you, where they can read your essays, sure. pick up your books? Um, I'm just going to pass it back to you now. Sure, sure. No, thank you so much, Julia. You're such a great, great host, by the way. Thank you. Um, so the Soul in a the Game, uh, they can find on soulinagame.net, and you, they can buy it at any bookstore, whatever. But if you want to learn more about the book, and more importantly, since the book came out, I already wrote four new essays, four new chapters, and you can get those essays absolutely free on soulinagame.net. That's number one. Um, I have a Substack, and if you just put my name, vitali.substack.com, you can just subscribe to my articles. They're absolutely free, no charge. And uh, th those are probably the easiest way to do this. Just, you know, on a Substack, Vitaly, you know, V-I-T-A-L-I-Y, that Substack, or just go to soulinagame.net. And just, you, by the way, you can subscribe to my articles there too. Excellent. Well, Vitaly Katznelson, author of Soul in the Game and CEO and CIO of IMA, I thank you so much for joining us and just, you know, being so generous with your time today. Thank you again. Julie, thank you.